This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, what you do, and where you're speaking from? I am Kate McIntosh, a retired architect. I'm in Winchester, which is where I live, in the room that I use as my office, which has a splendid view over Winchester to the Downs. I no longer practice architecture, but I am very engaged with campaigning, especially for social housing and sustainability issues. Going back to um, the very early part of your career, can you tell us a little bit about that and what led you into architecture? Architecture runs in the family, really. Um, My grandfather was an architect, a moderate success, and my father was an engineer. Um, Both my mother and my father were staunch socialists, and when we lived in Edinburgh, after my father came back from China, he um, got a job with an outfit which no longer exists, it was scrapped by Thatcher, called Scottish Special Housing Association, which was set up following World War I to deal with three pressing problems in Scotland. One was very high levels of unemployment, higher than England, appalling housing, especially in Glasgow, which had the worst housing in Europe, and lack of skilled labour. My father became the head of their construction side, so he was always on the road. This covered the entirety of Scotland, from the Highlands and Islands down to the borders, and he was always travelling about inspecting sites. And So he was committed to trying to raise the life standards and chances of the most impoverished sections of community and that that was something that was embedded in my assumptions about life worth living from a very early age. When I came to this point in life where I had to decide what I was going to do for further education, I discussed this with my father and I was equally drawn to the arts and the sciences, but I wanted to do something that has some sort of social purpose. And he, it was he who suggested that architecture would be a suitable career, which was pretty enlightened for a man of his generation. I, it hadn't even occurred to me that uh, women could enter the profession at, at that time. There were very, very few architect, women architects. And the School of Architecture at that time in Edinburgh was um, within the art college. So there were uh, very, very few women studying architecture, but in the general student population, of course, there were plenty of young women. And I probably had more friends among the artists than I did uh, amongst the architectural students. So fast forward slightly, because I want to talk about some of your housing projects. In 1965, at the age of only 28, when you were working for Southwark Council, you won the internal competition to design what became Dawson's Heights. 
Can you tell us about that process? Because it just it just seems just so extraordinary that at such a young age, although having, as you've said, done so much, that you would get that opportunity to build at such a scale. Yes, I suppose it was pretty unusual to run an internal competition. But for me, I absolutely welcomed it because, of, of course, in Scandinavia, competitions are normal bread and meat that people take in their stride. And a lot of the most important civic buildings in the UK back in the early 19th century uh, and early 20th century were um, competition projects. When I arrived, I was asked to look at this site, which uh, was a pretty exciting and stimulating site on which there were some remnants of what had been rather grand Edwardian villas, which were in a ruinous condition because uh, of the unstable ground conditions. And there was one chap working on this brief, which was calling for 296 dwellings in three different, four different sizes. He'd come through the LCC. So he was accustomed to this convention, which was then almost uh, universal in public housing, of mixed development, whereby you put the smaller dwellings, you stack them up in towers, and the larger ones you put in uh, three or four-story walk-ups. And he was proposing, I think it was three tower blocks on the site, which I thought was pretty banal and coarse. Eventually, there was a third member of staff recruited who I'd actually met years ago in uh, the Robert Matthew office in Edinburgh. And he developed a scheme not unlike Central Hill, which was more ground-hugging, high-density, low-rise. Because the foundations had to be these enormously deep driven piles, which pretty costly, that seemed to argue for a limited footprint. I developed this scheme with a very rough schematic model, which I put together in my own time, in my own little flat in Bloomsbury, for the two ziggurats, which are locked around a central space and with the high points staggered so that uh, they're not confronting each other and they each one looks across the tail of the other. So two-thirds of the dwellings get a view in both directions because both views are equally stupendous and very contrasty. With the vehicular uh, services um, by two cul-de-sacs with the parking tucked half a level down, all the dwellings are split-level dual aspect. Because of the split level, the access ways are every third floor, which uh, means the lifts are more efficient and the access ways are more busy with with people. You're more likely to encounter someone. I devised this interlocking system whereby a two bed, a three bed and a one bed are all sharing the same access way. And the four beds are coming off the lowest access way but share that with a a two bed and a three bed. And my theory was that I rather objected this arbitrary separation of large families and smaller families, which was implicit in the mixed development format. And I wanted to mix people up in a more organic way so that their needs and strengths would tend to complement each other and uh, make for good neighbourly relations. 
if I sort of get the chronology right, in 1968, you uh, moved from Southwark to Lambeth and the, the architect's department there, which is seen now, and, and, and I suspect at the time, as you know, one of the most innovative and exciting of London's um, local authority architects departments, you know, sort of up, up there with, with Camden. Could you give a, a sense of what it was like working there at that time? What, you know, what was the, the office culture like? Did you feel that you were, you know, there was this kind of this urgency to, to the work that you were, that you were doing, that you, you know, that, that what you were doing was literally transforming the lives of, of Londoners by, you know, materially improving where they lived. Yes, uh, that was generally the ethos in the office that uh, stemmed, of course, from Ted Hollenby, who'd come from the LCC, where he'd done some very important work. And he brought with him, he'd headhunted George Finch, who became my life partner, Rosemary Schoenstatt and Don Easto. I was in Don Easto's group, but it was not only a serious and earnest architectural ethos, but it was also a great fun place to be. There were most marvellous office parties, which uh, mostly were organised by George, and they always took place in one of Lambeth's own buildings. Um, So you got to admire the architecture and try out its function as well. And it was... uh, very much better organised than Southwark. Southwark, I think, had had its own architects department even before they took over most of the housing from the LCC, which then became the GLC. But Lambeth was very much an offspring of the LCC ethos. We had our own in-house mechanical and electrical engineering, our in-house quantity surveyor, landscape architecture, graphics, which reduced some pretty good uh, and professional-looking brochures for every scheme to go to planning committee. So the the morale was high and the competition was hot. (laughs) And what a a, a terrible deterioration has taken place since then. You you simply don't recognise the sort of atmosphere and... uh, objectives if they have any other than making money and surviving which is has permeated Lambeth now. So maybe we can we can talk a little bit about about that because your your work has transitioned from creating these amazing and socially important projects to activism and campaigning to retain them <laughs> and a sense of the the values that they hold and and which created them. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? There are six housing schemes uh, which Lambeth has in its sites for demolition. Cressingham Gardens is one, and of course Central Hill, both of which should have been listed. And my own scheme for sheltered housing, that was only listed because Lambeth were threatening to demolish it. And the residents, uh, or the daughter of one of the residents, came to me and asked me if I could assist them in resisting this because they didn't want to be moved. I'd been completely out of touch with my work in London for many years. So it was very heartwarming for me to to find that uh, despite the neglect, almost totally, 
of maintenance over 40 plus years, these frail and elderly people passionately wanted to remain in the sheltered housing scheme. They particularly valued the the landscape, the green space and the non-institutional character of the place. So uh, we put in this um, application. Oh, and there was also an online petition which uh, got hundreds of signatures, including many high profile architects, past presidents of the RIBA and so on. A group of the residents actually delivered this by hand to historic England, which was quite something for them to do because some of them have mobility problems and, and so forth. Anyway, in 2015, it, May, I think it was, it was announced that it was listed grade two. So we had a little celebration. There was an open gardens day and this same resident who'd got the degree in history of architecture, she suggested uh, they should get the place renamed rather than just being a number in the street. So <laughs> eventually Lambeth even agreed to that. And it's now called Macintosh Court, which is a very great compliment to me. And then we heard that Lambeth had decided they'd voted a, a sum of about one and a half million to catch up with all the neglect that had taken place. And uh, so we thought, wonderful, we're home and dry. Not a bit of it. <laughs> I got another call for help in 2018. Kate, Kate, come down and have a look. There's shoddy workmanship going on. So I went down and there were these great festoons of pipes being tied in spaghetti knots all around the exterior of the building. I took a photograph of one of these and went into this meeting where the Lambeth team was together with the contractors. It was a site meeting, really. And I showed them this photograph. Who approved this? It's all totally illegal. It's um, contrary to the listed protection. And blank looks came across their faces. The Lambeth team had seen no drawings of what these the two design and build contractors working without any coordination on the site. And the supposed control team from Lambeth didn't know what the results of their own decisions was going to be. Beyond belief, such total incompetence could exist. Anyway, still going on. Two years after practical completion, there's been three public apologies, one of them on BBC London News, two expert reports, and nothing but nothing has improved for the residents. Now the roofs are leaking all over the place. These cowboys actually created defects that were not there before. A group of the residents are suing Lambeth, not, not just for the legal breaching of the listed protection, but for their abuse of their duty of care to frail elderly people. It's shocking and it seems so strange when Lambeth have this extraordinary legacy of social housing in their borough treated mm -hmm. and obviously the people who live in it with such disdain. I lived in Southwark in the Brandon estate for many years until quite recently and that was Sir Tollenby's work when he was at LCC. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a one, wonderful series of designs and, and, and not as much a planning scheme as, as, a, as an architectural one. But I always thought that Southwark Council's 
ambition to make it council homes um, warm, dry and safe, while important and necessary, of course, showed a kind of complete lack of <laughs> imagination and for you know the broader things that housing can create, the sense of place, the sense of mm. community, which is obviously fundamental to what you were doing and the rest of the, the Lambeth um, Architects Department at that time. Are things as bad as they've ever been or is there are, the, are there any kind of areas where you can see that the tide might be changing a bit, that there are some local authorities that are taking council housing more seriously than perhaps they've done or treating it as more than simply units that appear on a spreadsheet? Yes, there are local authorities which are being very imaginative and ingenious. Camden is one, Islington is another, Greenwich is another, where they've set up arm's length development companies in order to avoid right to buy. The penalty for this is that they cannot get any access to central government funding. That funding is pretty meagre anyway, but the result of that, the, the, the fact that they have to somehow finance it themselves, means that um, a proportion of the dwellings they create, and they have to be working within their own land, of course, have to be sold in order to finance the rolling program. However, I don't know if you followed the um, series of events, the W Awards. The MJ Long Prize was won by Alice Brownfield from Peter Barber Architects. And she featured two schemes, one in Camden and one in Greenwich very ingenious, very inventive on virtually leftover little scraps of land, but managing to get in high quality and um, dense housing, but everyone with their own front door and some private open space. And they are marketing them leasehold, which means that the local authority ultimately still has possession of the land, which is really important because as you probably know, uh, and certainly your students ought to be informed, that since 1979, 50% of what was then publicly owned land has been sold off to private investors. And there, there is a, um, an onus placed on all public authorities, be it the army, the police, national health, the local authorities, of course, to prepare an annual audit of their land, hold, land and property holdings with a justification for the need for them to retain those holdings. And of course, as they are financially squeezed year on year, they've lost 40% of their central government funding in, in uh, 10 years. And of course, that burden is unevenly borne so that the authorities with the greatest need have been hit the hardest. They're forced to close down activities, which can make it appear that those that land and building holdings are no longer fully utilised. And then they have to just sell to the highest bidder, the sort of fire sale. Absolute scam. You mentioned the W Awards and Alice Brownfield winning one of them. Um, and of course, you won the other one this year. <laughs> you won the Jane Drew Prize for 2021. 
That, I mean, that obviously makes you feel quite good, <laughs> I, I imagine. <laughs> Yes, it gives me a very warm feeling indeed. Uh, not least because I, I knew Jane Drew. We served on RIBA Council together. She having been the first woman to be elected to RIBA Council. And she also being someone who had been very deeply involved with low-cost housing in Shandigar in Africa and then towards the end in Iran, which was a baptism of fire for her and Max Fry because the Ayatollahs took over and their practice went bust because they couldn't get any fees. So there, there is a personal meaning there, which, which is so wonderful. But of course, we all know that prizes are symbolic things as well. I think it says a lot about the profession now that you are being recognised given what you represent in the profession of someone who is so committed to social housing and using architecture for the public good. Do you, do you see it in that way as well? Yes, I do. And even more importantly, this latest announcement of the Pritzner Prize to Lakaton and Vassal, the partnership which says there should be no, no more demolition and uh, carried out these phenomenal schemes in, in France. I met them in 2017 at a, an event in London on vital neighbourhoods when they, they showed a scheme they'd done in Paris for 100 units. And now the uh, Grand Parc Bordeaux is 530 units. What a contrast with Lambeth, my God, or, or Southwark in its previous uh, iteration. You know, um, if they'd adopted that approach, Haygate and Aylesbury Road could have been saved. Absolutely, because th those locks are almost identical, really, the ones in Bordeaux to yeah. the ones that have come uh, down uh, in Aylesbury. Yes, they yeah. did a great architectural merit, but totally transformed. When you hear or have in the past heard Southwark Council saying, you know, there's no option, these buildings have to come down, they're not fit for purpose, nothing can be done with them, mm. and you present this, it shows a complete opposite. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the climate change is the number one overriding problem that we face for our survival and the survival of the planet. And we cannot go on just bulldozing and sending stuff to landfill. What is so interesting, there's this connection between the social agenda and the environmental one. They, you know, they can't be separated. Absolutely. Completely on the same page with that. It's just two sides to the same coin, social justice and ecological responsibility. They have to go together. Kate McIntosh, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.